Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now is a time where we are seeing Russians who are totally appalled by what they're seeing done in their name in Ukraine. And therefore, it's a moment where people are looking to come and help us. The head of Britain's Foreign Intelligence Service has been known for a hundred years as merely C, a tradition dating back to the founding of modern secret intelligence gathering and the roots of Ian Fleming's fictional character M, dispatching agents, including James Bond, to daring do and danger in far-off places. And every chief signs official communications in distinctive green ink. I'm Anne McElvoy, and I'll be hosting Politico's new global podcast called Power Play, coming up in the fall. Today, we hope to warm up your interest with a special introductory offer with someone who definitely wields power on the invisible front. I'll be asking today's British spymaster, a key ally of the US, about why he believes the West is involved in a pivotal battle for freedom as the war in Ukraine intensifies, and how that has changed the balance of power between old enemies of the Cold War. And to do so, I headed to Prague, a city where I covered the fall of communism in 1989, but also where an uprising against the Soviet Union 55 years ago sent shockwaves around the world and brought to life the threat of invasion by Moscow's troops. The 1968 Prague Spring of hopeful reform of communism was brutally crushed. It's also a city at the heart of espionage throughout the Cold War. Now, as a new war rages on the continent of Europe, we'll hear an insight into the thinking of a man who very rarely speaks about the threat posed by Russia and China, and perhaps the most impenetrable secret ahead of all of us, how to live and to spy in a world where AI is a new and controversial reality. This exclusive interview for Politico was recorded in front of a live audience at the British Embassy in Prague. In this setting in Prague brings me as someone who was here at the time in in 89. I was a very young journalist, obviously. But uh, one of the the things that I suppose I've reflected on coming back now is that that was a moment of great hope. 1968, which you also chose as your starting point, Mm. uh, was a moment when there appeared to be the hope of of reform communism in that period. Of course, both of those things, in a sense, led to, to different kinds of 
disappointments and challenges. So what do you make of the significance of the city when you walk these wonderful cobbled stones and your memories come back? Well, I mean, you're right, aren't you, that um, the Prague Spring was a false dawn and the, the real dawn came a generation later. Uh, I, I accept that. I think um, the reason for... I mean, I was coming to Prague anyhow uh, because I wanted to visit and we have um, extraordinarily good close partnerships with our uh, Czech friends here. But when we were thinking about me coming here, it seemed a very good place to speak about Ukraine in particular. Uh, and the, because the parallels are so strong, aren't they? This is the last European country to see Russian tanks rolling across its border. That is uh, where Ukraine finds itself. The crushing of the Prague Spring was a very important moment for, for my service, for MI6 in our history, because several Russians decided that that was, the, that was the breaking point for them, the point at which they decided to move against their own system, and they came to us and offered their help. And so I'm, for both those parallels, it seemed a really appropriate place to come and uh, talk about these issues. We uh, might delve into that offer that you've, you've made uh, for mm. those disaffected with the Putin uh, regime to call, call a number um, or, or get in, in touch in, in just a moment. But I'd, I'd like to just start by your assessment on Ukraine and the counteroffensive. Now, it is proceeding, I think, even according to those who are very supportive of Ukraine with difficulty and slowly. It's a massively difficult thing to take back uh, territory in those circumstances against uh, Russian forces. We see drone attacks <coughs> stepping up. Politico has uh, reported a massive impending attack in Kharkiv by Russia. Why are you so confident of the chances of Ukraine prevailing? And you know, what sort of time frame are you thinking that we could really see a breakthrough? Well, it's a, it's a hard grind. And, uh, you know, Ukrainian uh, officials and military uh, don't shy away from that. We don't, you know, that is very clear. And the Russians have had uh, a chance to put in defences which are very tough to overcome. But even though Ukrainian commanders, rather in rather stark contrast to their Russian counterparts, uh, want to preserve the lives of their troops and therefore move uh, with due caution, they have still made more, recovered more territory in a month than the Russians managed to achieve in a year. So I do remain optimistic about it. I think the resolve to support the Ukrainians is as strong as it ever was. And therefore, you know, our job is to focus on why we're all doing this. We're doing this because Putin launched a war of aggression on Ukraine uh, over a year and a half ago. And actually, if, if you think about it, if you think back to February uh, 2022, mm. the idea that you and I, Anne, would be discuss discussing not, not just the first, but the second uh, offensive mounted by the Ukrainians would have seen for the birds. And so I think they've done remarkably well. One has to put it in proper context, but I think uh, I do remain optimistic. Do you mean, when you, when you talk about Ukraine prevailing, what you and uh, your service is supporting, do you mean regaining all of its territory, including pre-2014, including Crimea? Well, most conflicts end in some kind of negotiation. It is for Ukraine to define the terms of peace, not us. Our job is to try and put them in the strongest possible position to negotiate from a position of strength, and that's what we're intent uh, on doing. Can you shed any light on the level of support that the UK and its allies are giving Ukraine in the way of intelligence? I know you're not going to do massive detail here, but where I think there are concerns, it is really the use of intelligence 
to support potential attacks now, according to the, the, the Kremlin, which has been very much uh, you know, on its high horse about it this week, uh, not least after the, the attack on, on the bridge at the Kerch Straits, is that this intelligence, which is being then used to target Russian assets, including they would say in Russian or Russian-held territory, is coming from British and American intelligence, and that risks escalation. What's your response? Well, it's very flattering that President Putin thinks that my service is behind all of this. But it's, it's really a bit more prosaic. You know, we have been very clear, the UK has been very clear, that we will support uh, the Ukraine to defend itself. And that's what we're doing. It is, um, it is Putin who has invaded Ukraine. They are absolutely right to exercise their right of self-defense. And it's absolutely clear that we will help them through both uh, provision of military material, but also uh, in any other way uh, to try and recover their territory that they've lost. We've seen the aborted uh, rebellion by the Wagner Group, the confusion about the status of Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin and this sort of on-off relationship with Vladimir Putin and possibly a deal uh, with Belarus. I mean, what in the great old Russian saying, I think it's Lenin, that one, isn't it? Who, whom, who's got power over whom? How are you reading it? Well, it is an extraordinary set of events. At the end of the day, what goes on inside Russia is, um, is up to the Russians and down to the Russians. But I have to say that day that we saw, that, that particular Saturday when Prigozhin made his move, uh, his sort of extended road trip uh, through Rostov and, and approaching Moscow, it was extraordinary. If you, if you look at Putin's behaviours on that day, uh, Prigozhin started off, I think, as a traitor at breakfast uh, he had been pardoned by supper, and then a few days later he was invited for tea. So there are some things, Anne, that even the chief of MI6 finds it a little bit difficult to try and interpret in terms of who's in and who's out. Uh, it would help if you had sources in the Wagner group, do you? Uh, so I obviously don't talk about uh, where we have sources, but it, it, I don't think it was a particular surprise, was it, when Prigozhin made his mood. He had been telegraphing with pretty violent language, his disaffection with uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov, the uh, defense minister and the chief of general staff of Russia. And so when he finally blew his top and made his move, uh, it wasn't that much of a surprise. It also, I would say, is a real indication of how uh, Putin can't contain uh, the impact of his invasion of Ukraine within the borders of Ukraine. And what we're seeing here is, if you like, the instability caused by uh, the appalling uh, casualties that the Russians are suffering on the battlefield, sort of bleeding back into the Russian body politic in a, in a potentially destabilizing so way. So how do you assess Putin's state of mind? I mean, you, you said well, this is mysterious, uh, the Prigozhin to and fro, even mm. to you. But you must look very closely and, and be well informed, uh, not least through through your secret operatives of the, the perception of Putin's state of mind. You, everyone remembers that story that he tells himself about you know, fighting the cornered rat and the rat corners him and he, he fights back. The, the, the doubt, I suppose, that that raises for a lot of people is like, are you dealing with someone who is either desperate or, you know, to, to use the sort of common language about it, a bit mad and prepared to go all the way to hang on to power? How do you assess him? Well, I, I think we are reasonably well-placed, as, as we were able to uh, demonstrate in the run-up to the war. He is clearly under pressure. You, you don't have a group of mercenaries advance up the motorway towards Moscow and get to within 125 uh, kilometers of Moscow 
uh, unless you have not quite predicted that, that was going to happen. So I, I think he probably feels under uh, some pressure. Prigozhin was his creature, um, utterly created by Putin, and yet he turned on him. Yeah, but sorry, just to move it along a bit. We kind yeah. of know that, or, yeah. uh, at least we, you know, we're informed as such. But the question is, what is his state of mind as you understand it? And do you believe that, the, to the point about the danger of escalation, that you might be actually dealing with someone who is prepared to go on and do unthinkable things? And obviously the nuclear question hovers over this because he fights back, he fought back hard against Prigozhin, whatever, you know, whatever the deal, he's still there, he's still in the Kremlin. And What's he, he thinking? And he, he really didn't fight back against Prigozhin. He cut a deal to save his skin using the good offices of the, uh, uh, of the leader of, uh, of, of Belarus. So uh, look, I, even I can't see inside uh, Putin's um, head, but uh, the, the only person who has been, well, the only people uh, who have been talking about uh, escalation and nuclear weapons are Putin and a handful of henchmen uh, around him. That is irresponsible, it's reckless, and it is designed to try and weaken our resolve in supporting Ukraine, and it will not work. And I was really encouraged, and you will have seen this as well, to see a group of uh, senior Russians and academics sort of push back against some of this ridiculous and dangerous rhetoric. Now, your message to those who would be having doubts uh, about Putin at a senior level, possibly inside the intelligence community in Russia, is come to us, come uh, to MI6. Now, that's a, a, an open-handed offer. I suppose it's always there from intelligence services. As you know, I kind of wrote memoirs of Marcus Wolf on the other side, and it's always a push and pull of who can attract each other's assets or, or turn agents or get new sources. But, you know, there's also a kind of elephant in the room here. I mean, some people would say, well, you know, what, like Sergei Skripal, that didn't go so well. You said in your speech that this was a lifelong commitment to those who came to work uh, with you and your secrets would be, be safe. But what would you say to those who say, well, in some circumstances, that has not turned out to be easy to deliver on? The truth is that people continue uh, to come to us, Anne. And of course, in doing so, they, they take risk. But as I uh, articulated to you, we look after the people who come and work with us. And of course, our successes are never known. Well, uh, well can you just give us a sense of the scale of your successes? Even if this is your moment to make them a bit more known. Are you seeing a pattern of people coming to you who may be in any sort of numbers who would not have done so before the invasion of uh, I, Ukraine? I use that parallel with the crushing of the Prague Spring advisedly because now is a time where we are seeing Russians who are totally appalled by what they're seeing done in their name in Ukraine. And therefore, it's a moment where people are looking to come and help us. And there's nothing to do about what's going on in Russia. What, what happens in Russia is, is down to Russians, ultimately. But uh, what they can do is to help us to bring the bloodshed in Ukraine to an end by helping us to support the Ukraine. And you're sure you can protect them, or that the security services, of course, that also MI5 that, can protect them? That, that is our sacred trust. If, uh, you know, if we could not do that, we would go out of business. And I can assure you, Anne, we are very much in business. 
We have a question from our Weltfernsehen co uh, colleagues in Berlin. There's been a, a major leak from the German intelligence service, the, the BND. That was a very senior level, and someone has been been arrested, and uh, that is you know, under investigation by the German authorities. Does this make British and American intelligence less confident in their willingness to share information with other intelligence services, even among uh, allies who are crucial in this period, like Germany? Well, I think perhaps my worst nightmare would be to wake up one morning and, and find that we had uh, a traitor inside SIS. We've been there before in the 1950s and 1960s with Philby and Blunt, uh, etc. And it is hugely damaging. So my, my first reaction when these things happen is to feel some empathy uh, for the situation of my partner and to support them because I hope that's how they would act towards us. So you know, that, that's the approach I take on this. Uh, the German intelligence service are uh, outstanding partners uh, of ours and we continue to work extremely uh, well with I them. I think the concern is, more broadly, is about the degree of sympathy for, ongoing sympathy for Russia in certain parts of German institutional life. I think isn't, that's the sort of sense of that question as well. Uh, I don't detect it and it, it, it's easy to forget because we move on too quickly perhaps sometimes just what a profound move in German foreign and defense policy happened post the invasion of Ukraine. And I see that manifested in the approach of their intelligence services. Let's move on to, to China and AI, which I definitely want to, to cover with you. So I'm afraid it is, it's going to be a bit, uh, it's a bit quick fire. The UK's Parliament Intelligence and Security Committee reported only last week on Chinese interference and influence uh, in the UK and issued a pretty damning verdict. The UK, it said, had no strategy to tackle Beijing's growing threat to the country's commercial, academic and national security. Well, that's quite a lot, isn't it? Uh, in your first uh, speech in post, you said that China was the single greatest priority for MI6 and you warned about miscalculation at overconfidence uh, in dealings with Beijing and, and of course, uh, the looming uh, threat of a possible invasion of, of Taiwan. So, <laughs> put these things together, it does look a bit like uh, the UK authorities and not only the UK have been a bit asleep at the wheel on China. Your thoughts? Well, the, the Intelligence Services Committee, the um, Independent Scrutiny uh, Committee of Parliament that oversees our work, uh, a key difference between us and, uh, and, say, the Chinese services, has produced a really comprehensive, thorough report, and I, it deserves a proper, full response, and it'll get that from the government in, in due course. I would just repeat what I said, and you just said back to me, that uh, we now devote more resources to China than any other uh, mission. That reflects China's importance in the world and the crucial need to understand both the intent and capability of the Chinese government. So, you know, from our perspective, it feels to me that we are very much awake at the wheel on China. And do you believe that there's a kind of axis of interrelated threats, the linkage of China with Russia, but also um, Iran, they're, they're kind of in, in the mix as effectively as, as a supporter of disruption to the, the Western system? I think views vary on how much to take these states, these very big autocratic states, uh, separately, or how much you believe in a modern, if I can uh, bring back a, an old phrase, the axis of evil, perhaps with slightly different players. Well... Those three countries are sort of pushing themselves together. It's not like anybody else is pushing them together, Anne. Um, Iran has chosen 
to uh, presumably to earn cash as well as probably to receive some military uh, uh, know-how in return to support the Russians. The Chinese have uh, lent very heavily in support of uh, Russia since the outset of Ukraine, despite the fact that, uh, of course, in his invasion of Ukraine, Putin tramples over two really critical uh, international principles, those of, uh, of national sovereignty and those of territorial integrity, which the Chinese government proclaims to be ones that it believes in, and yet very clearly it's taken the side of Russia. So, I, it, you know, this is happening because I think particularly in the case of uh, Russia and Iran, they're kind of running out of options. So the, the main option for them is to go running to Beijing. I think the, the underlying theme of your speech, which I find very interesting, having sort of seen things that one didn't think could sort of fall apart, fall apart, both for good and ill, is fragility. Do you believe the Communist Party of China itself is fragile? Do you think in, in uh, anything like we can predict, we might actually see a real challenge to the Communist Party as the central organising principle? Well, China is uh, an extraordinarily complex, complicated uh, country. It's a country, of course, with a fantastic history and culture. Um, and we will continue to, to monitor it closely. As I say, it's the thing we devote more uh, effort to than any other, and we will look across the range of factors um, uh, around China. But in particular, you know, we do that because the UK wants to defend its uh, values and interests, and where they collide with, uh, with China, we want to be in the best possible position to defend those interests and values. You've made a strong claim uh, this morning about values and superior values. There will be, of course, those who say, well, the UK and uh, other Western countries must be careful to take the moral high ground, given that it has welcomed Russian money and influence into the economy. It's left behind unstable regimes in botched campaigns in Iraq and was uh, part of, although, of course, uh, led by the Americans, a rather chaotic departure from Afghanistan. I mean, what makes you feel that you can say with confidence that people sort of calling you out for hypocrisy or just cherry picking that the ethics and values that MI6 stand for are reflected in broader outcomes? The values that we hold in MI6 are absolutely core to our sense of ourselves. They're core to the extraordinary men and women who work for my service. So I'm never going to apologize for talking about the importance of those to our work. But it's really important to come back, Anne, to what we are talking about here. We're talking about a wholesale act of aggression against a European country in breach of international law, accompanied by the most appalling litany of atrocities and inhumanity. And we really ought to be focusing, I think, on that and the other threats that uh, are posed. Uh, just just a, a last thought. I know you've committed very much to diversification of the service. You've mm -hmm. supported that uh, in terms of having many, many more uh, senior women. And you said very clearly that you want to see a lot of people come to the, the service who maybe don't think that, that it would be the, the right place for them. I notice also you've added uh, he, him to your Twitter bio, or someone has. <laughs> Um, why have you done that when a lot of people are quite sceptical of officials wading into pronoun wars? I suppose I'm asking if MI6 has gone a bit woke. Uh, I, I can say to you very comprehensively that uh, MI6 doesn't do culture wars. Uh, and, but what I do want is for um, my service to better represent the country we serve. Uh, that's a noble aim, in my view, but it's also an intensely practical aim. Diversity brings um, greater creativity, better problem solving, all the things that we know very clearly in the literature that it brings. And particularly for 
around issues around groupthink, it's a known risk for an intelligence, officer, uh, intelligence service. So it's very powerful. And then if you add the rather obvious point that if you have officers of ethnic minority, they might just give you some cultural insight that you might otherwise lack, as well as perhaps not looking like me um, on the streets of, uh, of um, uh, other, some other parts of the world. But I just wanted to say, if I may, on the AI side of things, because I didn't pick that up from your last question. So I want to say this. There is obviously an application for us in our business around AI, and I could give you a sort of simple use case. You know, one of our jobs is to mm. sift through data and find people who might help us, of the type I was describing, and AI will undoubtedly help with that. But far more important to me is that uh, there's absolutely no doubt that some of our adversaries will be prepared to develop AI in ways which are reckless and dangerous. You spoke about nuclear rhetoric earlier yeah. on. And that worries us, and therefore it will be a significant part of our role going forward into the future to try and uncover and de you know, detect, uncover, and then disrupt people who would like to develop AI in, in directions which are You're dangerous. You're fighting fire with fire on the AI front. No, I, not at all. I think it's that point I made in the speech that, about the human factor. It's really important that we work to preserve human agency over the technologies that we're developing. And not all actors out there may approach this with the same degree of responsibility that, that we in the UK do or people in this room might. My thanks to Richard Moore letting us in there on at least some of the secrets of MI6. If you liked what you've heard today, please follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app to Powerplay, our podcast which begins in mid-September as world leaders gather in New York for the UN General Assembly. Do join me then. Also, you can sign up to receive our email alerts every time a new episode is published. We'll add a link to that in our show notes for today's interview. This episode was produced by Peter Snowden in London and the executive producer with me in Prague, was Christina Gonzalez. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.